You know, I'm passionate about introducing people to Jesus. And I want others to encounter him in a very real way. I think I, I, my heart is grieved when people say that they know Jesus, but I can tell there's no life or substance to their faith. And they don't, uh, they've never encountered a living God, a living Savior who interacts with them day to day. I'm passionate about telling people about Jesus and having them meet him in a real and tangible way. And the question, <laughs> the question that I want to ask us this morning is this question. I want us to ponder it ponder this question. How do we in the church become effective communicators of the gospel of Jesus and present it in a way that is inspiring and compelling to others in light of our cultural context? We live in a different world today, don't we? And the gospel has never changed. The gospel message doesn't need to change, right? Like the gospel message is like a juicy steak. It's just what for those of you who are vegan or vegetarian, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but the gospel is like a juicy steak. It's just wonderful and it doesn't need to change, but the plate that we put it on needs to change, right? How many of you know that if some of you went to a restaurant and somebody served you a steak on a filthy plate, you'd say, yeah, you can take that back, right? But we need to present the gospel in a way that is compelling and inspiring in in light of our cultural context because it's a different world we live in and we need to find ways to become All things to all people, just like Paul says. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. And so the presentation needs to change. I'm going to tag another question. How does the Western culture, our Western culture in America, how does it perceive the church and the message of the Bible currently? If the church is supposed to love unconditionally, exhibit joy at all times, and be full of character and integrity, then why aren't more people joining the family of God? What needs to change? Let me tell you, it's not the gospel that needs to change. It's not the person of Jesus that needs to change. It's the church that needs help. It's the presentation of the gospel that needs help. How did we get here? How do we get to this this place in our society where so much shade, so much shade is thrown on the American church and the, the perception from people outside of the church is that churches are, are uh, they're really just pointless. That if you want to have a relationship with God, you don't need the church to do it. You can have a, have, have a relationship all on your own. You can watch whatever pastor on YouTube. You can read the Bible on your own. You can, you can, uh, you can intercede on your own. You don't need the people of God. You don't need the church in order to have a relationship with God. But can I tell you that Jesus is in love with his church. We are, the church is the bride of Christ. And if you were to say, I like Jesus, but I don't like his church, imagine somebody coming up to me and saying, hey, pastor, I really like you, but I don't really like your wife. Guess what? You and I aren't going to have a very good relationship because I love my wife and I am passionate about my wife. Jesus is in love with his bride. He's passionate about his bride. You cannot have a relationship with Jesus and not have community with the bride of Christ and not be a part of the bride of Christ. But something in the church needs to change, doesn't it? Because we know that people are not drawn in by the people of God. There has been so much shade thrown on the American church. But how did we get here? You know, some of you already know some of the history of the church in America. But for those of you who are my age and younger, let me, let me quickly catch you up to speed. You know, in, in the 1950s, how many of you remember going to church in the 1950s? Don't worry, you're not alone. This isn't an indicator of how old you are. 
the 1950s, it was, a, it was a good decade for church. You know, on a typical Sunday morning in the period from 1955 to 1958, almost half of all Americans were attending church. The highest percentage in U.S. history. During the 1950s, nationwide church membership grew at a faster rate than the population. From 57% in the U.S. population in 1950 to 63.3% in 1960, the church was rapidly growing, and people were belonging to a body of Christ. They were proud to belong to the body of Christ. World War II had just ended, and there was a trust in organized institutions like government and the church. People had just witnessed the power of coming together as one body to defeat an enemy, right? America came together with, the, with, with, with other nations to defeat Nazi Germany. And we saw the power of a healthy, organized institution coming together to combat the enemy. There was faith in organized institutions. And the American church's core values at the time were faith, were fellowship, and were family. <clears throat> but then ever since the 1960s, the American church attendance has been in decline with flashes of revival here and there, like the Jesus movement of the 1970s. Maybe many of you uh, were saved out of that movement or have parents that were saved out of that movement. And beginning probably sometime in the 1980s, church leaders noticed that people were attracted to pop culture and, that, and things that were cool. So the mission became, I'm going to present the gospel on a plate that's cool and relevant in hopes that people like the message because of how we're presenting it. And much of the church mindset, much of that cool, relevant church mindset is still very prevalent in our church culture today. We want to be relevant. We want to be cool. Did that just turn off? All right. Now, I realize that these are broad generalizations. It doesn't describe every Christian. It doesn't describe every church. But, you know, when I was in high school, the trend was to add things to your service like a rap or a spoken word. I went to a bigger church in Oregon, and, and, and it was even cooler if you could get a black person to do the rap or the spoken word. But mind you, I was living in the whitest state in America. I was in Oregon at the time, and we had one black person going to our church. And every Easter, he's the one who performed the rap or the spoken word. And the thing was, the guy couldn't even rap. And I would talk to him, and he, I don't even know why they're asking me to do this. I don't know how to rap. But, but we, the, the church was driven by this desire to be cool and relevant. This cool gospel focus of the Western church has led to the rise of many celebrity pastors that exude trendiness and relevance, and the addition of church websites and social media and live streaming. It only amplifies a church's ability to be seen and noticed from anywhere around the world. No longer were church leaders comparing themselves to Pastor Joe down the street. They're comparing themselves to churches all over the nation. And they're seeing what other churches are doing. And they're seeing these mega churches and churches that everybody's watching. And they're thinking that is the model. That's what we're trying to get to. That is what the world defines as a successful, healthy church. But let me tell you, that's not how God defines success. You know, I'm 32 years old. I know I'm a youngin. I'm 32, and I'm part of a generation that witnessed the American church become less and less authentic and more and more driven by recognition that it received from its peers. 
And so the core values from 1950 that involved faith and fellowship and family, the core values shifted in the church from a genuine faith to telling people what they want to hear because it's attractive and you're going to get more people into the doors by telling them what they want to hear. Nobody wants to be convicted. Nobody wants to have to deal with messy relationships. And if you call somebody out and you tell them that this is the way of a follower of Jesus, they're going to find a different church. I don't want my church to shrink. I want my church to grow. So I'm going to tell them what they want to hear and move from a genuine faith to to telling people what they want to hear. The church moved from fellowship, this idea that we are a body of Christ, that we are a family of God, that we do this together. We are a community that is that has the, the person of Jesus and the blood of Jesus in common. We move from this idea of fellowship, that we run this race together, that God has selected a church, not a person, but he's appointed a church to carry on his gospel message. We move from this idea of fellowship to individuality, that I can have a relationship with God on my own. I don't need other people. And so we created consumers in the church instead of servants, instead of people that serve and move together as one body. The church over the last couple decades has created a lot of consumers in the church who believe that they're here to get what they need and go home and have an individual faith outside of community with the body of Christ. The church moved from a commitment to family and church family to attending whichever church doesn't make you feel convicted or forces you to deal with tension in a relationship. You know, the thing about family is that no matter what happens, you still are their family. You've got to find a way to figure it out. You've got to find a way to iron out your differences. If you want to get together for Christmas or Thanksgiving, you've got to find a way to talk through some things. And some of you have family that, and that's just not happening. It's just, it's just too different. But, you know, the thing about family, the way God designed it is that when you are part of a family, it's this unconditional love for one another, despite the messiness, despite the imperfection. And what we've done is we've created churches that as soon as somebody knows your junk or you have a, a conflict with somebody, you have the option to go to the other church on the other, side of a t- on the other side of town, and you don't have to deal with that person anymore. But that's what the church has done in the last couple decades. By desiring recognition and comfortability, the American church sought growth at any cost and started making consumers instead of disciples. The American church validated shallow and selfish people instead of calling them up to a higher standard of living. Why? Because holding people accountable, like the apostles did in the Bible, might mean that they don't want to stay and our church might shrink. You know, the apostle Paul called out Peter many times. What are you doing, Peter? Why are you treating people like this? And he'd call them out. You know, Jesus wasn't afraid to shrink a church. Did you know this? In the Gospels, it says that thousands of people were following Jesus. After he fed a multitude of people, he fed thousands of people, and they were all following him because they thought he was wonderful. He could do miraculous signs and wonders. And then Jesus, there's a point in the Gospels where Jesus stands up and he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. And then the Bible says that everybody but the 12 disciples left. He went from a church of 5,000 to a church of 12. Come on, Jesus isn't somebody we want speaking at today's growth conferences, church growth conferences. 
Jesus had an opposite way of doing things. And the apostles, the disciples came up to Jesus and even said, hey, Jesus, um, can you, you might want to explain yourself there because this is a hard message to hear. And Jesus said, no, I don't need to explain myself. Jesus wasn't afraid to shrink a church. He wasn't afraid to tell people something, something that might make them feel uncomfortable. See, like I said, these are, these are generalized statements. This isn't everybody in the church. These aren't all Christians, but this is, this is, this is the shade that is on the American church. This is the, the majority perception is that the majority of American churches are full of mean, inauthentic, selfish people that are products of absent discipleship and poor leadership. It's not hard to see why the children of these people don't want anything to do with the church nowadays. The American version of the church is the only version they have witnessed. They haven't experienced authentic community. They haven't experienced the transforming, life-giving power of Jesus in their life. They haven't been told that it's okay to not be perfect. That it's okay to be broken. That Jesus still invites you to come. He still invites you into a relationship. And he'll heal you along the way. He'll transform you along the way. Just like he did with his disciples. And the problem is that people, they might be fed up with the church, but they're still longing to find purpose. People are still longing for joy. They still want unconditional love. They still desire freedom from pain and from struggle. People still want to see justice in the world today. They want to see the poor and the marginalized cared for. They want to be people of courage, and they want to leave a legacy These are all things that everybody wants. They're all Christian values, but they want these values without the church. They want Christianity without Christ. They want the kingdom without the king. We call this a post-Christian culture. That In a post-Christian culture, the people want Christian values. They want justice and love and hope and joy and peace, but they want it without the king. They want it without Jesus. And, and so the idea is that if I, can't, if, if I can't have Jesus, if I don't want Jesus, then I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to create a culture. I'm going to create an environment around me that exudes these qualities, that exudes these values. And I'm going to do it by bettering myself. I'm going to do it by being a better person. I'm going to do it by surrounding myself with people who think like me and act like me. And so the struggle is that, that people who want the kingdom without the king, they pursue the things of the kingdom, but they try to do it on their own power. And how many of you know that the floor falls out on that pretty quick? So how do people go about finding those things in life? Love, joy, and purpose. If the church doesn't have the answer, then who does? Jesus does have the answer. That's always the right answer. But, but in the world, who has the answer? It's the individual themselves. If, if I can't have the church and I can't have, if I don't want the church and I don't want Jesus, but I still want all of these values, all these good things that Jesus talks about, then I'm going to do it myself. I'm the only one who knows what I want and what is best for me. So I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to self-actualize. I'm going to become the best version of myself that I can be. <laughs> you know, I was scrolling through my Instagram this week, and I came across this audio clip that really took me back. It shocked me. It perfectly describes the society that we live in today. And this audio clip, it's become a TikTok challenge. And I don't know if 
I don't, I don't even have a TikTok, but some of you in this room might have a TikTok. But it's become a TikTok challenge where people, they create a video showing themselves pampering themselves while this audio clip is being played. And the woman who, who, uh, whose voice it is in this audio clip, her name is Esther Hicks. And let me quote for you what she says in this audio clip. And this is something that's circulating throughout TikTok. It's, it's circulating throughout our culture. Something that people are promoting, something that people are proud of. Here, I'll put it on the screen for you. It says this, I've decided that I'm a good person and I deserve good, good things to happen to me. And therefore, I've decided that I'm going to pamper myself as much as possible. I'm going to look for as much fun. I'm going to look for as much fulfillment. I'm going to look for as much ease. I'm going to follow my ease. I'm going to follow my bliss. I'm going to follow my flow. I'm going to follow the good feeling. I'm going to let the good times roll. I'm going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to hang around with people that are fun to be with. I'm going to look for the reasons to feel good. I'm going to look for people that are doing the same. I'm going to trust the law of attraction is going to cue me up with them. I'm going to feel less responsible to fewer people. I'm not going to let other people make me feel guilty about what I'm doing. I'm not going to take responsibility for what other, where other people are, no matter who they are or how related they think they are to me. I'm going to take no responsibility for how anybody else feels. My marriage vows are going to say, I like you pretty good. Let's see how it goes. I just need to warn you that nothing you do will have any effect on the way that I feel. I'm good. I've got that down. I'm not going to hold you responsible for how I feel ever. So just please yourself and make yourself happy because that is what I plan to do. This perfectly describes, <clears throat> this perfectly describes an individual who wants the values of the kingdom without Christ. Is I'm just going to follow my flow. I'm going to follow my bliss I'm going to follow my ease. I'm going to surround myself that, with people that want the same thing. And the minute that I discover, uh, uh, the minute I, I discover conflict or struggle, I'm going to just turn my life in a different direction because, because I, that's not the easy road. I'm going to start, I'm going to follow the easy road. Like I said, the woman who said this, her name is Esther Hicks. She's a motivational speaker and an author who's written books on the law of attraction. And the law of attraction, according to her, is the idea that uh, that you were created with emotions. Uh, and, and so uh, the things that you are attracted to, the things that you are drawn to, the things that you want and your, your desires and the good feeling that you're supposed to follow that feeling. You're supposed to follow those desires because it's going to lead you to the best way of life. Just follow your bliss, follow your ease, follow the attraction that you have. That's the law of attraction. Now... This woman, uh, she goes by the name of Abraham Hicks. And I thought that was so strange, so I actually looked her up on Wikipedia. And this is on Wikipedia. According to Esther, Abraham consists of a group of entities that are interpreted by Esther Hicks. Abraham has described themselves as a group of consciousness from the non-physical dimension. They have also said, we are that which you are. You are the leading edge of that which we are. We are that which is at the heart of all religions. Abraham, Abraham has said through Esther that whenever one feels moments of great love, exhilaration, or pure joy, that is the energy of source, and that is who Abraham is. Yeah, I think in the church we call that demonic possession. But, you know, they call it something else in other places. But there's this voice. There's these, you know, it, it just takes you back to Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, church. We're not fighting people. We're trying to win people for Christ. 
But our struggle is against the powers and principalities, the darkness in this world. That's who we're fighting. If you listen to the full audio of this on Reddit or Tumblr, you can see comments that other people have made regarding this recording. And this, this is one comment that was below the recording, and there's a lot of comments just like this. But one person said, you, yes, you, you are a good person and deserve all the good things you desire because you, like me, and all of us are worthy. The universe has lined up and ready ready to deliver it in unimaginable ways. So tune into the frequency of your desires by seeing it, touching it, hearing it, smelling it, and tasting it, and practice that until the universe has no choice but to give it to you. You see where this lie begins, though? You see where the lie begins? You see where it starts? If you read the Bible, a lot of this should sound really off. It should sound really odd because in Romans 3.23, it doesn't say that you're a good person. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say you deserve good things. In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't say to follow your bliss and follow your flow. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? the world would say, you're a good person and you deserve good things, so follow your heart. And the Bible comes along and says, actually, you're not a good person. You deserve an eternity in hell and uh, Jesus is the only one who can save you. No wonder Jesus told his disciples that they would be hated for him, right? No wonder Jesus told them, hey, this this message you're about to go out and preach, it's not going to be a popular one. People are not going to like it. The secular narrative is that you are inherently good and deserve good things. So trust and follow your heart. And it's been that way ever since the beginning of creation. Think about Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent convinced Eve that God was actually the evil one. Now Eve, listen. God just, God's trying to keep you from something good. Did God really say that you would die? No, he knows, Eve, that if you eat of the fruit, you're going to become like him. And so God doesn't want you to have that. God is actually the one holding out from you. God is actually the evil one in this scenario, Eve. You're the good one. You deserve good things. So follow your desires. Doesn't the fruit look pleasing to the eye? Doesn't it look desirable, Eve? And Eve took the fruit and she ate of the fruit because she she believed the very first lie. That God didn't have the best in mind for Eve. That was the lie. But the Bible makes it clear that apart from Jesus, we're evil and we deserve an eternity in hell and we cannot trust our deceitful hearts. Why is this important to know? Why is it important to know that I'm a sinner on the way to hell until Jesus showed up? Why is it important to understand that? Because you don't think you need a savior until you know there is something that you need saving from. We, we all need a savior. And people accuse the church of being arrogant and prideful and, and higher, holier than thou. But I look at it and say, who's holier than thou? We are a, a body of people that admit that we are imperfect. And the only way that we can have a relationship with God is by admitting our weaknesses. And by, 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 uh, by coming under the blood of Jesus and admitting that we can't do this on our own, that we're imperfect. And we invite people to come into that fellowship salvation in the bible 
is being delivered from sin and the punishment of sin, but salvation according to the world is reaching your fullest potential, living your fullest life by attaining self-actualization. It's when a person works and works and works on themselves so much that they're finally confident in who they are and what they want, that they're at peace with everyone else. Or salvation means that you avoid difficulty altogether and, you, and pursuing everything that makes you feel good. Right? That's true freedom. That's true salvation in the world's narrative. But 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5 says this. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Here it is. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers. I'm going to surround myself with people who want the same thing as I do. They will gather around themselves a great number of teachers and say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. I love how Paul says, endure hardship. That's one thing the world will not tell you. The world will tell you you don't have to endure hardship. Follow your bliss. Follow your flow. Follow what makes you feel good. If you come across conflict, if you come across something that's difficult, then change. If you're not happy with your marriage, then get out of it. You don't have to live with that. If you're not happy with this in your life, then change your circumstance. But Paul, he says, no, endure hardships. Life is going to be hard. But with the Spirit, he has given you the power to overcome anything in the world. It's not a popular message. But the Bible says that the truth will set people free. We don't have to cater to the desires of what people want to hear. We don't have to tell them what their itching ears want to hear. We don't have to present the gospel to them on a plate that is sparkly and has rock music playing from it. We can present the gospel message in its purest form and let people just see Jesus. Let people see the, the incredible way that Jesus can change your life. So the question I asked at the beginning was, how do we in the church become effective communicators of the gospel of Jesus and present it in a way that's inspiring and compelling to others in light of this cultural context? I believe the short answer is to remain faithful to the Bible by practicing what we read. You cannot read the Bible and then not do what it says. That's where the American church gets its shade. That's why people have not liked the American church historically because, because of people who read the word but don't actually do what it says. They'll preach it and they'll say it, but they won't actually live it out. They won't do it. They'll talk about forgiveness. They'll talk about staying in messy relationships, but they won't actually do it. They go find another church. They go find another relationship. They go somewhere else. They get out of it because it's too hard. Jesus knew what humanity was created for. Our purpose in life. He knew what it was. Are you ready? 
If you don't know what your purpose in life is, I'm about to tell you. Here's your purpose. Our purpose in life is to have an eternal relationship with our creator and with each other. You were actually created to have a relationship with God. It's why you were, that's why you were made. Think about the very beginning of time. God had everything he needed. God is God. He could speak it into existence. He spoke the sun and the moon into existence. He spoke the land and the sea and all the animals. He spoke everything to his, into existence. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything that you could give to him. He doesn't need you to perform for him. He doesn't need you to do anything for him. God created you because the one thing that he didn't have was love reciprocated back to him from you. He just wants a relationship. He could have forced you to love him. He said, I'm, he could have said, I'm going to create humanity and they're just going to love me. They're not going to have any other option. But what did he do? He put a tree in the middle of the garden. He said, at any time, Adam and Eve, you can choose a different road. At any time, you can eat from any tree in this garden. I give you permission. You have freedom. Eat from the tree of life. How many, there was two trees in the garden. There was a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, eat from the tree of life all you want. It's good for you. It's, it's amazing. But don't eat from this other tree because it will lead, lead to death. But he gave them an option. Because what he wanted was relationship with them, was love reciprocated back. And that's all that God wants from you. Your purpose in life, you were created to f- discover a vibrant relationship with your creator. And you were, dis- you were created to discover a vibrant relationship with the people around you. God created relationship first. Before anything was ever made, we see the Trinity who said, let us make mankind in our image. There was a heavenly relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit long before anything else was ever made. Relationship was before time. And God values relationships so much that he birthed a church full of people that had to be in relationship with one another where he is the head of that body. He values relationship. That's what you were created for. The good news is that secular salvation always falls apart. Each person can spend their entire life trying to perfect themselves and avoid pain and pursue pleasure, but it always leads to an empty pursuit. And then there's Jesus who comes on the scene, and he says, guess what? You don't have to be perfect because I was perfect for you. You don't have to do anything to find love because my love is unconditional. I died for you before you said yes to me. While you were still a sinner, I gave my life for you. I have a purpose for your life that is beyond what you can imagine. You want justice in the world? So do I. Let me fill you with my spirit so you can get the job done. You want joy? So do I. Let me fill you with my spirit so you can be full of joy at all times. You won't find it attempting to avoid pain. You find joy in the midst of pain because Jesus says, I am your joy. He says, you want freedom. You won't find it in unlimited options to do whatever you want whenever you want. You find freedom when you submit to the plans that I have for you because I have the best life and mine for you. Mark Sayers, who is a pastor and an author in Australia, Melbourne, Australia, he says, the gospel of secular salvation 
promises that you can find meaning by exercising your ultimate freedom and doing exactly what you want whenever you want. Our Western culture has chased this message for years, but coronavirus is showing that we need a social fabric and structure to live in more than we need ultimate unlimited freedom. God is doing something new in his church. And I believe that he, he's used the last two years as an opportunity to, to shake some shallow, shallow consumer Christians out of the church so that it can begin to get healthy. Jesus is taking the church to a place where only mature followers of Jesus can go. I don't want to be a part of a church full of shallow, mean, selfish people. I would rather have a church of ten people that are in love with Jesus and in love with each other and are authentic and go deep than a church of 5,000 people who are mean and selfish and consumers and they don't think outside of themselves. And what coronavirus did is it, it took away some people's, some, of, some people's unlimited freedom. It shook them up. So they said, what, what, what's going on? Why are you telling me I have to do this? Why are you telling me? And we saw during, during the last two years what's really in the hearts of some people. What kingdom they really belong to. Whether it's the kingdom of God or the red kingdom or the blue kingdom. He's doing something new in his church. So, practically, what can we do to share the good news of Jesus? I just got six really short things for you. As I was praying through this message, these are some things that I feel like just stood out. And uh, <clears throat> obviously, it's not a comprehensive list. But what can we do to share the good news of Jesus in an inspiring and compelling way to people around us today? Number one is stay in messy relationships. Stay in messy relationships. No matter how messy it gets, no matter how imperfect that person is, if they are a family, if they belong to Christ, they are your brother and sister, and you are called to love them, and you are called to practice forgiveness and patience and compassion. Listen, you will not grow more than, than, than exercising patience and compassion for a person that you do not like. You will grow spiritually. You will grow into maturity. Stay in messy relationships and learn to love those people. Learn to see them the way that Jesus sees them. Number two, be authentic to what you preach. Be true to what you preach. Don't, don't share a, a message with somebody. Don't preach a message to somebody and not live that out yourself. But be authentic to what you tell people. Be authentic to what you preach. Don't tell somebody to read, to read their Bible if you're not reading your Bible. Don't tell somebody that they should be praying more if you're not praying. Don't tell someone that they need to forgive someone unless you are authentic to that and you're learning to forgive people. Number three is we need to use joy to share Jesus. You know, uh, one thing I can't stand is when the you know Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons come to my church and they knock on my door and they got this like, hello, can we talk to you about the Book of Mormon? I'm like, man, you seem like a happy bunch. No, we have, we have a joy... That is unexplainable, church. We, we have a Jesus that has given us salvation forever. We have eternal freedom. We are set free. We have a joy that nobody else has, and we should share Jesus with a joy that's in our hearts. 
Come on, when you share Jesus with somebody, it should be compelling. It should be inspiring. And you know, one of the best ways to share Jesus with people is tell them how you met Jesus. Tell them your testimony. Tell them what Jesus did in your life and let the joy of your salvation exude onto another person. Use joy to share Jesus. Number four, have a relationship with God that nobody else knows about. Have a relationship with God that nobody else sees, that nobody knows. That in the morning, when the door is closed, you are praying and you are reading and you are getting to know God in a way that nobody knows what you're doing. Have a relationship with God that nobody else knows about. You know why that's so important? Because we live in a crazy world. It seems like World War III is about to break out. But you know what's going to keep you steadfast in the midst of all the chaos in the world is this secret relationship you have with God. If God is your shield and your shelter, if you read throughout the book of Psalms, you can tell that David had this relationship with God where every time he stepped into the presence of God, he felt like he was being protected under his wings. He felt like he was being shielded. He felt like he was in a fortress. And that is what's going to keep you steadfast in the coming years. And whatever is happening in our world, developing that relationship with God that nobody knows about, finding that secret place is going to put you in a place uh, of security. Number five, be honest with your struggles and confess your sins to someone you can trust. Be honest with your struggles. Like I said, find somebody you can trust to tell them what you're going through. The more you hide it and the longer you go on pretending that it's not there, the more pain it's going to cause you. Paul says over and over through, through his letters that I boast in my weaknesses. I boast in my weaknesses because when I am weak, he is strong. And we are a body of people that don't believe you have to be perfect to belong. Jesus invited the 12 disciples to follow him while they were still filthy fishermen. And Peter had a lot of things to learn. Jesus said, why don't you follow me? Why don't you belong to my fellowship? And we'll... We'll work on things along the way. You will learn to confess with your tongues that I am the Son of God. You will learn how to pray for the sick. You will learn to do all of these things, but come and belong and be real. The longer you go on pretending like there's nothing wrong, the longer that pain is caused in your life. But there is a freedom that comes when you are able to say, I don't have it all together right now, and I need help. There's, an, there's, there's a freedom that comes from that church, and it's just like this weight is taken off your back. The last thing is this. This is especially important in church culture today. I think this is one of the things that people, that, that maybe, that, make, that scares people away from the church most is, is this. Promote people in public and critique them in private. Gossip and, and, and being mean to people in public and putting people down to make yourself look good, it's one of the most unattractive things in the church. Gossip is one of the most unattractive things in the church. But when the world looks at the church and they see a body of believers who promote each other in public and they honor one another, and then if there's an issue, if they need to say a critiquing word, they take them in private and they have a discussion just one-on-one with them. They don't do it in the public place. They don't tell a million other people before they talk to them about it. Promote people in public. Critique them in private. We have a simple faith, church. People 
you know, they tend to think that Christianity is this hyper-religious. I'm going to invite Christina to come up and play the piano as we close. But uh, the, people tend to think that Christianity is, a hyper, is hyper-religious and it involves so much time and effort. Ah, I've got to pray. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to confess my sins. I've got to be perfect. <laughs> but in actuality, uh, if you think about <clears throat> the birth of Christianity, it was this incredibly refreshing thing. Because before Jesus came on the scene, people were polytheistic and they worshiped multiple gods. And, and the religions at the time believed that if you wanted to have success, if you're planting a field and you wanted your fruit or your crop to grow, you would to sacrifice and pray to that particular God and go to the temple and do all this stuff. And if you wanted to cross this river, you had to pray to that particular God and sacrifice to that God if you wanted to successfully cross the river. If you wanted to go to war with another nation, you had to sacrifice and pray to the God of war who's going to give you success. And it was just incredibly arduous and so much involved. And then Jesus shows up and he says, I'll do the work for you guys. I want you to sit around a table with one another and drink some wine and eat some bread. Just love one another. Practice forgiveness. Practice unconditional love for one another. It was incredibly refreshing to people. And they thought, wow, I don't have to do all this work. Suddenly I'm part of a community. I believe in a Savior that died for me and He did all the work for me. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to do all these things. Jesus did it for me. And Jesus invites me to come to the table with other people and share the, in the joy of that salvation with those around me by, by drinking from a cup and eating bread with one another. This act of communion that Jesus instructed his disciples to do. It was revolutionary. People in this town are struggling to be good enough people. I remember going to Moses Lake with my wife during a, a date night, and I had this conversation with this guy, and we were talking about, you know, loved ones in the past who have died. And I said, "Do you believe?" I said, "Do you believe in life after death?" And he goes, "I think so. I'm not really sure what's going to happen, but you know, I'm a good person. I'm a good enough person. I think I've done more good things than bad things in life, and so I think everything's going to iron out in the end." And I said, well, that's quite the dice to roll right there, my friend. Like, well, I've been good enough. We'll see. When I get to the gate, we'll see if it was good enough. And the Bible says that, listen, everybody in this room was not good enough. No matter how perfect they thought they were, they was not good enough. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, but I am good enough. And I will die for you. And I will take the punishment of death for you so that you can enjoy what you were created for, a relationship with God. People need to be set free from this good enough mentality. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I, am I a good enough person to earn God's love? Am I a good enough person to go to heaven? Am I a good enough person to be accepted at that church? Am I a good enough person to be loved? Am I good enough? People need to be set free from that because Jesus says, no, you're not good enough, but I am. So now now you're good enough because you can clothe yourself in my righteousness.
They're carrying this weight that will eventually crush them. And how refreshing would it be if we went back to the basics? We went back to the gospel message and served them a stake that said, Jesus has done everything for you. You are worthy of love because Jesus died for you. So come into the family of God. Enjoy, enjoy in the family of God with us. And Matthew, I just feel like... Everybody just close your eyes right now. Close your eyes, bow your head. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are here today and you've been struggling with that, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Is God pleased with me? Listen, if you're here and and you're done with that, you say, maybe you've never said yes to Jesus before, and you say, I want to say yes to Jesus because I want to know that I am good enough because Jesus died for me. If that's you, if you've never said yes to Jesus, but this morning you say, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life, would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you today. Just raise your hand high so I can see it. Anybody in this room? praise you Jesus God we thank you for your presence we thank you for the gift of salvation for the joy that we have because of it God we believe that revival is coming not just to Ephrata but revival is coming to America and revival is coming to the church God you are getting your bride ready for something new You are taking your church to a place where only mature people can go. And there is not a better time to be a part of the church. There is not a better time to be alive than right now. I believe that the church today is going to see more great things, more signs and wonders than ever before because we are coming to a tipping point where people are realizing that they can no longer do it on their own anymore, but they need Jesus. And who has the answer? The church has the answer. His name is Jesus, and we, we live out the Bible. We do what it says. We love people and forgive people unconditionally. Jesus, I pray that you would breathe fresh life in everyone here today. We thank you for your word that is so good. Lord, help us to stay away from the lies of the enemy. Help us to identify those things that the enemy is trying to plant in our culture and in our ears that are what our itching ears want to hear. Help us stay true to your word to sound doctrine and not us and, and, and help us not veer away from it help us to find new ways to communicate the gospel in inspiring ways compelling ways and let it begin with our testimonies by sharing with people how jesus met us thank you jesus and we love you in the name in his name we pray and the church said amen i love you church next sunday if you're new to our church and you want to know more, next Sunday we're going to do a grow class. It's an opportunity to meet me and my wife, potentially, if she doesn't have to be with kids. Uh, but it's an opportunity to get to know the heartbeat of our church and uh, to learn more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. God bless you. That's going to be next Sunday after church. Make sure to sign up for baptisms if that's on your heart. And we will uh, see you next Sunday. Bless you.